0: Good morning, church family. It's uh, lovely to see you all. Just a couple of uh, notices before we begin. Um, You've got in your pack this morning a flyer showing what's going on here during Easter week. Um, Can I just ask you to think and pray about this? In previous years, we've had a church family camp uh, near Villiersdorp, and we haven't done that this year in Easter week because a number of you can't get time off work. And we want to have an inclusive program that everybody can share and be part of. And I guess that some of you are thinking of loved ones that you want to come to Christ. You want them to hear the word. And Easter week is one of those times in the year when they will come to church and they will listen. So can you start thinking and praying about who you're going to ask to come along? Palm Sunday, then Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday evening that week. Good Friday and Easter Sunday. So that's the first thing to say. Take this, stick it on the fridge, keep thinking about it, think who you're going to invite that week. Then secondly, um, can I draw your attention to the music workshop, which is going to happen in this hall on the 17th of March, that's a Saturday, from 10.30 to 1 o'clock. And this is for those of you who a couple of weeks ago said that you want to be involved in music and singing here at St. Barnabas. Uh, we have a special guest to help lead that workshop. That's Hanaki Bota, who was here with us for our birthday service. So if you're interested in that and you want to be involved in the music and the singing, then that's the 17th of March at half past ten. Good, well, can I ask you please to keep your Bible open at the passage that Lyndon read for us and also to have the bulletin open Where you'll find an outline that shows where we're going in the next few minutes. I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you and praise you this morning for the privilege of an open Bible. We remember those many peoples around the world who do not have that privilege, so we don't take it for granted. Please draw near to us now. Open this word to our hearts and our hearts to your word because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hudson Taylor was the founder of the China Inland Mission. Um, he was so successful in opening up inland China for the gospel that on one occasion, He was complimented by a friend on the impact the mission had made. And the Hudson Taylor replied rather mysteriously, Well, it seems to me that God looked over the whole world to find a man who was weak enough to do his work. And when at last he found me, he said, Yes, he's weak enough, he'll do. Now I think to our ears that sounds really rather strange, doesn't it? Can can weak people really accomplish anything worthwhile? Uh, what would Donald Trump say about that? What would Cyril Ramaphosa say? What would you say? Well, whatever you would say, it's actually a very important question for every serious Christian. Because, you see, all of God's giants have been weak people who did great things for God simply because they counted on God being with them. You see, things often look a great deal stronger than they actually are. For example, a rock can look unbreakable but it can be cracked open fairly easily if you find a fault line running through it. Uh, A casual observer might miss it, but an expert spots it. And if he does, then a hammer directed at the weakness will crack the rock open, even the strongest rock. I want to say to us this morning that people are like that too. They can look as hard as iron on the outside. They might seem to us to be completely unbreakable. And yet there can be a fault line. There can be a weakness in their character. And if that weakness is struck at just the right angle, it can crack even the hardest person wide open. And suddenly you find actually, they're not really so strong after all. That's not how they looked before. Now, the Bible tells us that whilst man looks at the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. Now, in Luke 22, as Jesus looked around that upper room at the disciples, only he could see into their hearts. Do you remember from last week, he's just told them that he's going to give his life for them. His death is going to mean new life for them. But as he looked around that room, he could see the fault lines. He could see the weaknesses. And uh, he saw that when the, the hammer blow fell of his arrest, of his trial, and of his execution, his crucifixion. He saw that the the rock-like exterior of their claim to be faithful disciples, decent Christians, would actually split, split wide open. Because Jesus could see their hidden weaknesses. Now that is true of each one of us gathered in this church this morning. Jesus knows our hidden weaknesses completely. Uh, We may well be able to hide them from one another. We might even be able to fool ourselves. But the fact is that everything about us is exposed and laid bare before the eyes of Almighty God, to whom all of us one day must give an account. And He not only sees our fault lines and our weaknesses, But he also knows when the hammer that breaks the rock is going to fall. So friends, the the passage before us this morning is not simply history. It's not just telling us what happened in the upper room the night before Jesus died. No, it's teaching us that all of us, without exception, have weaknesses that Jesus can see them even if we can't. And if you and I are going to stand firm to the end as Christian people, then you and I have got to get real about this. So what are these weaknesses? Well, of course, there are plenty of them, aren't there? But in this passage, Jesus identifies three in particular, three weaknesses, I think, that are common to most Christians. First, in verses 24 to 30, Jesus identifies the weakness of personal ambition. Now, it's almost incredible, isn't it, to read verse 24 in the context of what's just happened in the upper room. Verse 24, Also a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. That is amazing, isn't it? In the shadow of the cross, having only just taken the Lord's Supper, having just heard that Jesus is going to die for them, the disciples are bickering about who are the top dogs. Which of them is going to become Prime Minister when Jesus enters his kingdom? Now, if we didn't actually know our own hearts, we would hardly believe it. But if we do know our own hearts, well, we have to admit that there is some of this in all of us. Luke has actually told us that the disciples have done this before. Uh, You don't need to turn to it, but all the way back in chapter 9, as Jesus set his face like flint to head for Jerusalem, the disciples were arguing back then about who would be the greatest. But on this occasion, um, the catalyst seems to have been the seating plan at the Passover meal. You see, at a Passover meal, um, the guests were normally seated around three sides of a square, with the host occupying the central position at the top table. At his right hand would be the next most honoured guest, at his left hand the second most honoured guest, The third most honoured guest would be sitting two places to his right, and so on. Now, um, in the upper room, Jesus, of course, was the host. And we know from elsewhere in the New Testament that John was sitting next to Jesus. So it seems as if the disciples were saying something like this. Does the fact that John is sitting next to Jesus mean that he's going to be the Prime Minister when the Kingdom comes? Is he going to be the one? Who's going to be the greatest? Now, my friends, it is very easy for you and I to read that this morning and to think to ourselves, how pathetic, how very self-centred. But you see, we only actually get value out of the Bible when you put yourself into the situation so you see if we read this and say well of course I wouldn't behave like that well then we're not going to get anything out of this the Bible isn't going to speak to us but if we realise that within all of us there are hidden weaknesses the same hidden weaknesses that these disciples had well then we begin to realise that there's a message for us here after all because you see it's still very much a temptation today for christians to be ambitious for ourselves even within a church fellowship like this to want to be seen as important to be jealous of people who have a higher profile than we do it is actually a faithful weakness and here jesus deals with it immediately and ruthlessly Because you'll notice in verse 25 that he classifies that sort of behaviour as thoroughly pagan. Can we all see verse 25 in our Bibles? Jesus says, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. Now you see, at that time, to be a Gentile Was to be a pagan. Uh, They might have been calling themselves benefactors for one reason or another, but actually they occupied positions of authority solely for their own benefit and to fulfill their own selfish ambitions. They wanted people to see how important they were. And Jesus says hang on a moment, that is the way that pagans operate. And I don't want my disciples to be living like that. But which of us here this morning doesn't know how easily that we can fall into that trap? How easily we can appear to be serving Christ when actually we're serving ourselves? And how easily we can turn a ministry responsibility into an opportunity to boost me and my personal ambitions. And Jesus says, that's pagan. That's the world, and if you follow it, whatever you build won't last. So the language in verse 26 is extremely strong. Jesus says you are not to be like that, because the kingdom of God operates on totally different principles which actually reverse the pagan values of the world. They turn those values upside down. Now, it's very interesting, actually. Please notice this. Jesus does not say that there are no great people in the kingdom. He doesn't condemn the right kind of Christian ambition. So, if you want your life to count for God... If you have the desire to achieve something for God in the world, that is not pagan. That is not pagan, it's very Christian. But what Jesus does here, you see, is he redefines ambition. Now, you need to know that in Jesus' day, um, older people were greatly respected. Uh, That's not always true today, but it was then. The longer you were around, the more people respected you. Younger people in that culture were far less important. But Jesus here says that the values of the kingdom are radically different. So just look at verse 26. He says, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, the least important, and the one who rules like the one who serves. And he continues in verse 27. For who is greater the one who's at the table or the one who serves. Now, friends, that's obvious, isn't it? Um, there you are. If you go to a restaurant, you don't expect to have to go into the kitchen, bring the dishes out, take them back in and wash them up afterwards, because that's part of what you're paying for. So, obviously, in that context, the person sitting at the table is greater than the one who serves. But what you've got to notice is the devastating words at the end of verse 27. But I am among you, says the Son of God, as one who serves. And those last words, I think, come across to us with mind-boggling force. Because we know from elsewhere that Jesus has just washed the disciples' feet. Apparently the disciples were reluctant to do that for each other because it was the lowliest job of all, but Jesus did it, and he did it willingly. And now he says, naturally, you would expect me as your Lord and Master to be waited on by you. But friends, that isn't what my kingdom's all about. Instead, listen to this, I... The Lord of glory, the eternal God, the creator and the sustainer of everything, the saviour of the world, the judge of all the earth, I am among you as a waiter at a table. And that is what it means to be great in the kingdom of God. It's measured in terms of service. Now, don't misunderstand that. Christ is not saying, if you want to be great in the kingdom, first uh, prove yourself by doing a lowly job and in due course you'll get promoted. That would actually turn Jesus' argument upside down. That's what the world says. And uh, if we think like that, when the pressure falls on us, we will crack wide open. But Jesus is saying, you see, that faithful service in however lowly a role is itself spiritual greatness. Have you grasped that yet? Faithful service in however lowly a role is itself spiritual greatness. So you see, your ambition is to be a servant. Why is that? Well, Jesus explains in verse 28. He says, You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones. What's he saying? He's saying, yes, one day... You'll be out of this world and you'll be in the eternal kingdom and there you will be waited on and you'll sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And all that is coming once the schooling here is complete. And uh, those who've been faithful here will be rewarded with close personal fellowship with the Lord And they will share in his government of the new heavens and the new earth. But that is not for this world. Because this world is a world of foot washing. This is a world of self-sacrifice for disciples. This is a world of putting ourselves out for other people. And that's what brings the eternal reward. It's also what brings joy to the heart of the servant king. So friends, can I encourage us please to get real about this this morning? Because God sees our hearts even if we can't. You know, sometimes we make judgments about other people but all our judgments of other people are always off target. But uh, God can see. And I want to ask you to look into your own heart and to ask the Holy Spirit to show you if this is a hidden weakness for you. Whether underneath it all you're really concerned about personal greatness or influence or authority or status or any of those other things that kind of boost me rather than encourage other people. And if you do see any of those things in your heart this morning I want to invite you to bring them to the cross of the Lord Jesus to lay them at his feet and to ask for his forgiveness and leave them there. Otherwise when the hammer falls it will crack us wide open. The second weakness that Jesus identifies here I've called a naive self-confidence. A naive self-confidence. Come with me to verse 31. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied... Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. So here then is the second weakness, naive self-confidence. The reason that Jesus' words are directed to Simon is that he is the leader of the group after Jesus. And uh, after Jesus returned to heaven at the ascension, it was Peter, wasn't it, who became the leader of the apostolic band. Now, it is very easy for any leader to imagine that he's stronger than he is. It is very, very easy for that to happen. So can I especially warn those of you who are training for pastoral ministry that when you get into your first pastorate, People will try and put you on a pedestal and you will probably want to let them. But you know, it's very, very easy for the pedestal to come crashing down because of a naive self-confidence. Now Jesus begins here uh, by using the name Simon because that was the name that this man had when Jesus called him. He only became Peter, which is the name that Jesus uses in verse 34, through faith in Christ. It was only, you see, because Christ laid hold of Simon that he became Simon Peter. And I think that reminds us, doesn't it, that it's only through faith in Jesus that you and I can have any sort of spiritual strength at all. But Peter's problem, and I suspect ours, is that we often tend to imagine that the spiritual strength resides in us. So we tend to take our eyes off Jesus and we think, well, you know, I, I don't really need to trust him in quite the same way that I used to. I wonder if you remember that moment when Peter was called out of the boat on Lake Galilee. Do you remember, he he saw Jesus, didn't he, walking on the water, and Peter said, Lord, call me to come to you. So Jesus did, and Peter stepped out of the boat, and he started to do the impossible. He started to walk on the water, until he took his eyes off Jesus' and he saw the wind and the waves and he began to think what am I doing this is impossible and of course it was but you see his confidence in that moment was in himself rather than in Jesus and so down he went and the point is you see that as soon as we take our eyes off Christ we immediately fail have you learned that lesson have you Or do you still have confidence in yourself to live the Christian life? Notice in verse 31, uh, Jesus says that for the disciples, the hammer blow will come from Satan. Satan has asked to sift you, that is all of you by the way, because the you there is plural. Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. Just as he did, actually, with Job. Do you remember? In the Old Testament. Satan has been asking God for permission to test the reality of the disciples' faith. Now, I assume that that is something that the devil does from time to time. He sees individuals, or maybe groups of people, And he asks God for permission to test the reality of their faith. Do they really serve God for nothing? Do they really want to trust him and follow him and be obedient to him? Or are they hoping to get something out of it? Well, we know from the book of Job that Satan can't move an inch further in the testing of a Christian than God allows him. Because the the devil, let's remember this, is a creature of God. He is not God's equal. He is entirely under divine control. If you want to think of it this way, he's rather like a dog on a lead. But God sometimes lengthens the lead. And disciples are not always shielded from Satan's attack because they have a sifting effect in our lives. So Jesus here, you see, is warning Simon Peter. He's saying, let me tell you, you do not realise how weak you really are. You are naively confident in yourself. And your faith isn't going to fail, but it is certainly going to suffer a temporary defeat. The reason it won't fail is nothing to do with you. It's because I've prayed for you. And so you see, friends, it's the prayer of Christ. It's his intercession for his people that preserves us in faith when the devil's hammer falls. So Simon is going to deny the Lord, as Jesus says in verse 34 but he's not going to betray him. And uh, from the lessons that he's going to learn in his defeat, he's going to emerge stronger so that he can encourage the other disciples. Now, to Peter, uh, in verse 33, that sounds absolutely preposterous. Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Naive self-confidence. He thought himself to be much stronger than he actually was. And can I say that if a man like Peter can think like that, then a man like you, a woman like you, someone like me, well, we can think like that too. Hidden weaknesses. Peter underestimated the power of the enemy. He underestimated the weakness of his own faith. It was actually fair-weather faith. But Jesus knew Peter better than Peter knew himself. And he says, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. In the space of just a few hours, that's going to happen. Now, Jesus knows us just like that too. And it's saying to us this morning that we've got to realise just how utterly dependent we are on God's grace. Without that grace, you and I have nothing. Without our eyes fixed on Jesus, we will certainly fall. Because we're always vulnerable to Satan's attack. And if our faith is... You know, simply a faith that believes in Jesus when things are going just the way we want them to go and life is fine and we're fit and healthy and there's no money pressures. Well, what sort of faith is that? So again, we need to get real about this before God this morning and see if we're perhaps overconfident in ourselves so that when the day of testing does come, and it will, we won't deny him. For you it might come tomorrow morning at work. You might find yourself in a situation that challenges your faith and suddenly, if not by words but maybe practically, you're actually denying that you're a Christian. You thought you were so strong in church on Sunday morning but you are only as strong as your day by day, moment by moment contact with Jesus Christ. Take your eyes off Jesus. Stop looking to him. Stop drawing on the resources he's got and every single one of us, me included, will fail. So we really do need to search our hearts this morning, don't we? And the third weakness that Jesus puts his finger on is the area of spiritual blindness. Blindness. Verses 35 to 38. You see, the disciples then were expecting a kingdom of instant triumph and victory. After all, they'd followed Jesus into Jerusalem, Uh, they'd shouted his praises with the crowd, they'd been waving their palm branches, Uh, they'd watched him throw the money changers out of the temple. They'd seen him defeat the Pharisees and the Sadducees day after day at the temple as they besieged him with their ridiculous questions. And the disciples were thinking, well, you know, surely Jesus is about to take the throne and rule and that means that greatness is just around the corner for us. But that's not how it's going to be at all. The disciples are blind And so the Lord Jesus has to burst the bubble. Look at verse 37. He says, it is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. And as the disciples follow in the footsteps of a rejected Messiah, they're going to need all the resources they can lay their hands on. I think that helps us understand what Jesus is on about in verses 35 and 36. They're not easy verses, so try and zoom in and focus with me. Verse 35. Then Jesus asked them, When I sent you without purse, bag or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, But now, if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. Now, of course, that is not literal. He's not saying, go out and sell your cloak and buy yourself a physical sword. Why do we know that? Because in verse 51, which we'll look at next week, Jesus gives the disciples an emphatic command not to use violence against their enemies. So what is he actually saying? Well he's saying to them, look, when you went out on mission as my ambassadors I made sure that you had everything that you needed but after my crucifixion you're going to be in a completely new situation and you're going to need different resources because you're going to have to fight different battles. The sword of course is an image of warfare But the warfare that Jesus has got in mind isn't physical warfare, it's spiritual warfare. And the disciples are going to need to be armed appropriately. But they still didn't understand. These uh, dear disciples, who are so like us, they have uh, a quick look around the room and they say, Oh, look, Lord, we found two swords. You know, as if two swords are going to be enough to stave off the Romans. And uh, in verse 38, what does Jesus say? Actually, it's one word in the original, enough. It's a very strong word that Jesus uses, and he just stops them in their tracks. And what he's saying is, stop talking like that. You've completely misunderstood me yet again. Now, friends, that speaks to us, because the church is right at the very heart of God's mission to a hostile world. God is sending us out into a hostile world on a, with a message of forgiveness and peace. And it's people whose lives have been changed by the cross that take that message out into the world. But the problem is, that same cross Also generates hostility from our unbelieving neighbours, friends, colleagues. Which means that when the church is being faithful to the gospel of the cross, it will always be treated in the same way as the Lord Jesus. Now, let me ask you are you prepared for that? Are you men who are going into ministry prepared for that? If you find yourself this week being challenged on some moral or ethical issue and you know the way of the cross, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to carry the cross and put up with the flack and with the rejection? Or are you going to compromise and deny the Lord? I think when we reflect on that, we can see, can't we, that there is a fault line, there is a weakness running through most of us, isn't there? We think, well, you know what, I never reckoned on that when I went on Christianity Explored. I didn't understand that. It wasn't actually the gospel I was taught. Maybe the gospel you were taught was that if you come to Jesus, all your problems will be solved. That is not the New Testament gospel. The New Testament gospel is that when you come to Jesus, you will exchange the problems of somebody who is not a Christian for the problems of somebody who is a Christian. But the great thing for the Christian is that we have a limitless resource in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we have the power of God living within us. And that power is is able to strengthen us to more than meet those problems. But friends, let's get rid of any idea that the Christian life is a cosy picnic, because it's not. The disciples thought that they were on a fast track to triumph and spiritual success. And Jesus is showing them that following him means hardship and self-sacrifice. Yes, of course, there's tremendous joy in being a Christian. There's so much to be thankful for when we look at the things that he's done in our lives, the things, things that he's done in our church, the things that we see him doing in one another. And in the world to come, as we were singing earlier, we have so much to look forward to. But the only way into the world to come is through the cross as we follow the Lord Jesus. And so we have to search our hearts this morning because just like these disciples, you and I often think that we know best, that we know better than Jesus. And instead what we should be doing is saying, search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there is any offensive way in me Any hidden weakness. It might be personal ambition and pride. It might be naive self confidence. It might be spiritual blindness. A blindness that always wants my way and never really stops to ask, Lord, is this your way? Now, those are just three of the most common weaknesses. There are lots and lots of others. And only God knows our hearts. I don't know your heart, you don't know mine. But can I say this? If we will look to Jesus, if we will get real about our sin in these things and lay it at Jesus' feet and ask for his forgiveness, if we will really say, self on the cross, Christ on the throne, and repeat that day after day in our lives, if we will search our hearts to see what's wrong, and where the weaknesses are, not because we, we are to dwell on them, but so that we can bring our weaknesses to Christ and fix our eyes on him, and prove that, yes, he has the power, he has the resources to enable us to live the Christian life. If we're prepared to do that, then whenever the, the devil's hammer blow falls, and it will, he will find only rock. Because the soul that is grounded on Jesus Christ is grounded on the rock. And though you might tremble on the rock, the rock will never tremble Under you. Do you believe that? Let's be quiet for a few moments. Let's search our hearts now and ask the Lord to reveal our hidden weaknesses. Who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? But I am among you as one who serves. Is that our heart? A servant heart? Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Peter, you will deny me three times. He was numbered with the transgressors and this must be fulfilled in me. Lord, we thank you for your word that searches our hearts because it makes us realise how utterly dependent on your grace we really are. We thank you that each of us can testify to your power and grace in our own lives so that we can be channels to one another, to strengthen one another and to lift one another up when we're cast down, to encourage one another when we're discouraged and to build one another up by actions as well as by words. Lord, we want to be those who strengthen and encourage others. So deal with our weaknesses, we pray. Help us to bring them to your feet. Take away the pride and the ambition. Take away our naive self-confidence. Shine the light of your truth into our spiritual darkness. And help us to walk in the steps of the Saviour who gave himself up for us all. Thank you, Lord. Amen.